What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. So pumped to be talking about misinformation security. We have Dr. David Perlman joining on the, on the show. Hi, David. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. I'm so pumped for this conversation. Thanks for coming on the program. I'm pretty pumped, too. I love it. It was so cool meeting you and getting to know you more last year and now getting the chance to sit down with you and talk about this very very pressing field that's emerging. For those who don't know David's background, he's founder and CEO of CogSec Technologies, Cognitive Security Technologies, the first misinformation security vendor protecting socio-technical systems of enterprises. And you can find the link in the bio below to CogSec.tech, as well as his LinkedIn and the Twitter profile for the company. David, we're so obsessed with this question, and we start all of our shows with this, so I'm very pumped to ask you it. What do you think is the point of this creation? The point of this creation, wow, that is, that is a big question. And, you know, I'm going to buy some time by giving a shout out to my co-founders at the company and just thanks to all the people who have supported me. Uh, Sarah Jane Turp is the chief science officer, and she actually invented the term misinformation security, as far as I know. And, uh, you know, another friend, Rand Waltzman, invented CogSec, Cognitive Security Technology. So I owe so much to so many people, and I don't have time to thank everyone, but I just, you know, it's, it's really important to me to show gratitude, and I want to start with that. It's beautiful. And hopefully we can um, feature some of the brilliant yeah. minds that you get to collaborate with and that have been such major influences on you yeah you'll you'll all be hearing from us um so what is the point of all this why are we here you know uh, there's there's a few different ways i could answer that question one of them would be like the physicist type answer of like oh you know the big bang and the equations and schrodinger's equation and stuff like that and one of them would be sort of assuming that maybe god created the universe and then asking the question why what was the intended like the preordained intended purpose. But the, the version of the question that I personally feel the most connection to is what do you experience as your purpose in existing? Mm. And uh, one of the reasons I like that question is because it's, yeah, it's a lot harder to get into the kind of argument that starts wars over that question because it's really very individual. You know, I, I think everyone... It, you can't really stop people from choosing their own beliefs about what the purpose of their existence is. Uh, I do think that there are some that tend to work out better than others, and there are some that I think are really valuable. Uh, kindness, compassion, self-knowledge, uh, both at an individual level and at a collective level. You know, Building a kinder world just between you and your friends is one thing you and your family, you and your children, you and your partners. Building a kinder world for all of us to live in is a similar sort of work, but it takes a different set of skills. Uh, you and I have talked about meditation in the past and how that fits into all this. I don't know, maybe we'll get back around to that later. But yeah. I think that if I had to say one thing that I've chosen as a purpose, I think it's to do work at a collective level that helps as many people as possible reduce their suffering and or live a more positive and satisfying existence. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for Thank that. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
That's so good. And this also stems for your, from your initial uh, pursuits into neuroscience and psychology and doing your PhD in the Center for Healthy Minds, which we will talk about. And also up until even today, let's jump, let's jump into this. I like that, um, that perspective about understanding what is your individual divine purpose here and um, figuring that out is uh, of paramount importance of know thyself um, and also figuring out why we are here together what uh what is the highest possibility that we're all working on bringing forth i did kind of punt that question yeah, you did you <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah 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 um okay let's let's go into um as we are experiencing this big collective emergence of information technology, these computers and this internet have absolutely revolutionized our world in a myriad of ways. One of them being our ability to disseminate information at such fast speeds and to so many people. And now the question is, are we doing this for inclusive fitness? Do I, am I doing, am I disseminating a meme because I, I love you and I care for you and I want to share beautiful, important knowledge with you? Or am I disseminating things that are self-dealing that I just want to earn money from you or that I just want to cause some sort of malevolence on you to disrupt a democratic process or whatever it may be? So I'm really glad that this is where you've like, you're just right here right now. So tell us about your big picture view on what's, uh, what's going on. Well, you want to hear my big picture view on the good parts or on the bad parts? <laughs> give, us, give us both. <laughs> well, like, like you said, I don't know if this is good or just neutral, but like you said, I think it's, we're obviously at kind of maybe what you might call an inflection point in terms of information technology. There's, uh, you know, I could, me and my partners all have a whole lecture that we do about the history of information technologies and the invention of the printing press and the democratization of information distribution. Uh, I think one of the key points to understand is that there, there's sort of two things that are happening at the same time right now. And one of them is that everyone has access to a nearly universal broadcast medium. Yeah. And this was never true before. People had access to information from all over, but the fact that you could shout out into the void and maybe everyone would hear it, that's new because of social media. And then the other thing that has come together for not entirely equally obvious reasons that I won't go into having to do with economics of the internet and stuff like that, the traditional news media is kind of breaking down. Mm. So we're left with a, not so much an information vacuum, but we're left with a credibility vacuum where there's not as much resources available for someone to do really, really careful analysis. And then there's also still the sense that somebody should be trustworthy. So what that means is that, you know, maybe in the future, no one will believe anything they read and maybe a different set of problems will come from that. But the problem is that right now, everybody has the sense that someone out there is a credible source, but there isn't really anything determining who it is. So basically, whoever manages to play the game right can actually convince everyone that they are a credible source. 
and then people really believe what they have to say. So you ask the question, you know, why are you sending this meme out? What's in your heart when you send the meme out? And I think it's important for people individually to think about that, you know, and maybe there's some, some kind of skills that people could learn about filtering information. But I was talking earlier about the individual and the collective. And for me, what's more important is to think about how do we build the systems so that the outcomes generate less suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, so the systems would be things like democratic societies as opposed to authoritarian regimes. And then there's an information ecosystem that has to go with that. And then unavoidably, the information ecosystem is digital. And a democracy depends on a mass information ecosystem. So then it basically it boils down to what is the nature of the digital information infrastructure of a society as one of the key points for whether you have a society that generates suffering, more or less suffering, or people have satisfactory lives within that society. Um, I'm going to put it back to you. Where, where would you like me to go next on that topic? Wow. So many profound insights there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's start with, um, first is this, uh, the view on the big picture is that now there's this uh, almost universal broadcast uh, medium that we have, this tool that we can now propagate memes out with. And then, then there's the credibility vacuum, like you mm -hmm. listed. And I like that, that terminology. Way more distrust happening now for the mainstream media news sources. Um, way more distrust happening for uh, our, even our, our Congress. Um, and uh, in many ways, um, the founding principles uh, were not to have uh, one person um, uh, representing uh, hundreds of thousands of people, but rather one person representing thousands um, of people. I believe the figures are we were, were supposed to have at this rate of increase of population up closer to 8,000 people in, uh, in Congress. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's a very, this is becoming more and more uh, of a pressing issue to figure out, like you said in this last point about democracy about the nature of the way that the information is communicated between humans is then the way that we decide on how we best want to live collectively. Okay, so maybe um, one of the next areas that we should go with this is that, you know, you're starting cognitive security technologies. You guys, I love, I love this about you guys. Um, you're doing... This quote, this quote about you is really good. Um, early detection and attribution of disinformation campaigns. I love that. So maybe give us a little bit of insight on the background of disinformation campaigns. This can actually, you also were teaching us about this before we started, um, that now you can hack mass psychology. Mm-hmm. So we work a lot with the idea of socio-technical systems where you're, you're drawing a box around the system and the box includes people inside it and machines, networks. So in order to understand the workings of a socio-technical system as a system, you have to take into account individual psychological factors, collective psychological, sociological factors, 
and also the behavior of the computer networks. So it's that sort of collective expertise that our team is good at, at bringing all these pieces together. Um, so when you talk about socio-technical systems, what I was saying before about in order to have a society, you have an information ecosystem. The information ecosystem is a socio-technical system because it consists of all these people who are in continual interaction with digital channels, but then they also talk to each other person to person. You know, they call their friend on a phone, which is a digital connection, and then they say something to them, which is a psychological phenomenon. So um, from the point of view of, you asked about misinformation security. So what, what, what I mean by that is, if you ask this question, how do you build, or what would be the specifications for an information ecosystem that leads to a positive and benevolent society? Mm. There's sort of two questions, and this, this is a parallels an age old question that you have wartime and peacetime mm. traditionally. Mm. So basically you have the question of when everything's going well, what works well? Mm. And then you have when everything's going to hell, what works well. Mm. So when people talk about the attention economy and the extractive economy and, you know, the like too much distraction, information overload, they're sort of talking about what you might call the peacetime questions about building the information foundations of our society. Mm. And what we're only recently seeing people start to talk about is what you might call, and I'm you know, deliberately being provocative here, but what you might call the wartime foundations yeah. of the information infrastructure of a democratic society. Yeah. And what that means is what happens when it comes under attack. And what attack means is that someone with a fixed set of, someone with goals, which are not in our best interest, is using our information ecosystem to hurt us, you know, whether to uh, any number of things, you know, I mean, the most obvious thing, if you want to just go with a parallel of going with a traditional military parallel, somebody, you have a hostile foreign power and they're thinking, well, we could invade and, you know, shoot guns and bullets and bombs and stuff. And then we like, you know, take over and we seize the capital and then we have annexed this country like we saw with, this, uh, with Russia and the Ukraine in 2014. Like you just roll the tanks in and you take over the capital and then you have annexed this country. But the, what you want, like the, the attacker's goal is to control that country. And a smart attacker will be thinking, what are the various ways that I could control that country? So when I say the wartime basis of the information infrastructure, that means what are the ways that a bad guy for just to use very general terms could control some segment of society or a nation state or something like that using information and in particular the digital information ecosystem now that's the very big picture you can narrow it down a little bit and, and say well instead of focusing only on the really big picture which people are starting i think right now given recent events since 2016, many Western countries are very, very interested in everything that I just said. But one of the ways that we're trying to get out ahead of the curve is that control is not just a matter of militaries and nations and war. There's any number of reasons why anyone has things they want to control. You know, Pepsi wants to control more of Coke's market. 
uh, Cisco wants to control more of Huawei's market and vice versa. So you have... Especially when in this case, it's no longer a physical tank or bullets or soldiers that need to go in in this board game of risk, but rather it's just something as simple as sending these digitally into the information sphere of that location and, and hacking the psychology internally of... Yeah. Right. Yeah. So private companies have always wanted to control more of their space, but it's pretty rare for private companies to use what the military refers to as kinetic activities to increase market share. The only example I really know of was William Randolph Hearst blowing up a ship to create news and sell more newspapers. That's kind of an outlier. You don't really see that sort of thing happening very much. But what you do see is companies using every imaginable kind of propaganda to build up their markets and in some cases to attack their competitors. And given what we're seeing now with just how extreme and how powerful and how devious the modern techniques of digitally enhanced propaganda and psychological manipulation on a mass scale, it would be very naive to think that private, also the fact that none of it's illegal, it's all completely legal. So it would be very naive to think that private entities and even mainstream respectable corporations wouldn't try to use these techniques against each other. Uh, and we, we, in fact, have already seen a little bit of this. One moment while we just fix the mic quick. Try to like okay, a little bit. Mm, sorry. I'm maybe the, my words are too weighty. Let's see. Uh, should we bring it in a little? Yeah, that'll be good. This is great. And then we can also. Yeah, no, this is perfect. Thanks I think you got everyone. it just right here. Thanks everyone for the patience. Yeah, y'all this talk about democracy and suffering and wartime and nation states that would weigh down any microphone. Hey, that's, that's the thing, yes, yes, okay. I love it. All right. Okay. So yeah, so the private sector is gonna have to start caring about this stuff. And I think that for the most part, well-informed, thoughtful people in America and a lot of Western countries are thinking about social networks and Twitter bots and election manipulation and hacking and blah, 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 that whole world. But there, it, there's only a few people that have taken it a few steps out and said, anybody can do this to anybody for any reason. Anything you wanna control, any market you wanna dominate, this is gonna happen like crazy. And I'm kind of hoping you're going to ask me for examples. Please give us, <laughs> give us those examples. So the, the bad example is that a few years ago, it, was, uh, it came out that Huawei was putting in backdoors in their communications equipment. And the only real global scale competitor for Huawei is Cisco. So one of the things that the Huawei CEO did at a press conference when this came out is he said, well, Cisco just has backdoors for the NSA. So who cares? You know, it's just six of one, half dozen of the other. And, and that was it. He had a press conference. He said a thing, which I know not everyone's going to believe me, but I will tell you that that was misinformation. Cisco does not, in fact, voluntarily give backdoors to the NSA, but more importantly, Cisco is not legally required by the government to give backdoors to the government, which is not the case in other countries. So there was 
a misinformation statement, but not a campaign. Mm -hmm. Now imagine if, think about everything with, you know, Twitter bots and memes and conspiracy theories and QAnon and Pizzagate and, uh, you know, the whole nine yards, like everything that you're familiar from, from this other world. Imagine what had happened if Huawei had decided to pull out all the stops and to use all those techniques. I mean, do you think there would be anything left of Cisco? I mean, people would believe that before you know it, they would have massive fractions of the population believing that, you know, the Cisco CEO was part of a, I, I don't know, I don't even want to give anybody any ideas, but you'd have people showing up with guns at the Cisco headquarters. So that's one example. Now, the places where you are seeing these techniques used, <laughs> I think some of the most, the, like the place where this has already reached saturation is with crypto scams. Because if you go online, you're going to get an email from Elon Musk or somebody, you know, here, have some free Ethereum or whatever. And some of them are more elaborate than others. You know, there's like a whole, like people start to believe that some guy was hit by a bus. And again, I don't want to go into too many details because I don't want to get people started again. But you see a lot of this going on in the crypto scam world where people are just, you know, it's just this market that isn't really regulated or controlled in any way. And you can make an enormous amount of money if you can predictably move public sentiment, even just a few notches on the dial. Mm. So these are the kinds of things we're talking about. Uh, you know, in the, the, the extreme scenarios haven't really showed up yet in the private sector, but the extreme scenarios have showed up in, you know, the sort of electoral slash political sector. And none of it was illegal when they did it for politics. So do the math. <laughs> These examples you list uh, and the potential uh, results, the effects of misinformation have uh, a massive uh, sway on the way that our world evolves. And it's... It's, it really sits deep in, in the heart of um, what, what is going on. Let's start with at the root level. Where do you think even this urge for propagating misinformation comes from? Well, again, there's this distinction. Uh, I'm not going to call it wartime and peacetime. But I'm going to say there's things that just happen, and then there are things that are done maliciously. Uh, one of the first several years ago when I was first getting into this field, I went to a workshop and someone who was a journalism researcher gave a presentation about fake news. You remember, you remember the word fake news? We used to say fake news, but now nobody says that anymore for reasons. Um, it was, this journalism researcher was talking about fake news and they had done surveys in different countries and like gathered examples of like things that catch on and get repeated over and over again. You've probably seen... Uh, a picture of a flooded freeway and then there's a shark in the flooded freeway every time there's a hurricane or something somebody circulates that picture and they're like oh my god the situation in Houston or Puerto Rico or New York or whatever is so bad there's a shark on the freeway and then one of the reasons that I have a personal connection to that example is that I fell for it <laughs> I forwarded it to my friends and then another misinformation research was like yeah I'm doing a study on this <laughs> this misinformation. <laughs> got I was like, oh no. <laughs> oh no. Anyway, so that's just plain old 
fake news. And then there's malicious fake news, which is, okay, I'm trying to knock down this candidate or this competitor or whatever. So I'm circulating stories for a reason. Mm. So the... I think for, you know, from a sort of academic point of view, the non-malicious stuff is a lot more interesting because then, you know, that's really just studying psychology and sociology and like what kinds of stories do people find inherently rewarding or believable? You know, is it like a heartwarming story? Is it cute? Does it make them angry? You know, there's these emotional responses and then people tend to do it and some things just have the right kind of characteristics to go viral and people do it because like conversely, the things that are viral are the things where it's more likely that when I see it, they'll trigger some combination of emotions that make me want to forward it. So I might just be forwarding it because, you know, oh my God, that blows my mind that there's a shark. Everybody has to know about this. The hostile side of things is a different story because, you know, the answer to why people would spread misinformation maliciously is to control the beliefs of some group of people. And when I say control the beliefs of some group of people, I don't mean, you know, like a James Bond mind control ray that turns you into a zombie. What I mean is that whether you're talking, you know, market competition or elections or whatever, for the most part, the big, you know, the big changes hinge on maybe two to 5% of any given population. You know, if you like, if you're a company, and you're looking at your market, and then you imagine 5% of the people in your market changing to some other perspective, you really have to care about that. I mean, the numbers that companies live and die on in their quarterly reports are a lot less than 2 to 5% of their entire user base or customer base or whatever. So when I say mind control, Ray, what I mean is a... And elections getting swayed by elections. Yeah, well, yeah. not yet, yeah, yeah. obviously. Yeah. It's a it's a stochastic mind control ray, which by which I mean it doesn't pick an exact person to control, mm -hmm. but you can say, I can control a small percentage of the people in the population that I target, and that's enough to accomplish some of these goals. And you know, as soon as different hostile or in some cases just plain old PR people realize that, then it's open season. Uh, I mean, if you, to put it another way, with this, this mind control ray I was thinking about, uh, I think people who are kind of familiar with internet advertising and mass marketing and stuff like that are familiar with ideas like click-through rates and conversions and stuff like that. So a conversion rate, in general, people are probably thinking you expect conversion rates of like 0.1% or whatever. And if I told you this Bond villain has a mind control ray that works 0.1% of the time, no one's particularly that's not going to, you know, get a big reaction. Uh, but you got to put that together with the two factors. One of them is that as soon as it starts to reach 2% or 5%, that may not sound scary. It might still sound like good odds and you feel, I'm not worried about that, but that's still enough to be a useful weapon. And the other thing is, I mean, I got a marketing thing from an email marketing I don't even remember, but basically they went through in great detail and seriously, this was for progressive political causes. It was like, are you a progressive charity? Do you want to send out email campaigns and gather donations for your progressive causes? 
and in this whole thing, they like had this. They, they had this whole article about all their methodology and exactly what they did, and the iterative A/B testing and all this kind of stuff. And basically, they're like, "Here's our results," and they're getting 56% conversion rates with their campaigns. You know, in, in a tar pre-targeted demographic, so not just 50% of everyone randomly, but if you target a demographic and then you really do all the work at the cutting edge, there may be an upper bound of like around 50%. And I think, I, you know, if some bad guy had a 50% mind control ray that would turn me into a zombie, those are not odds I would want to take. Let's, let's uh, um, address this also from a perspective that you Ori know, and I have been spending a lot of time talking about the new world and talking about what are the roots, what are the root causes of some of the old systems that exist in our world, and then why are some of the incumbents behind the propagation of those old systems? Uh, why are some of the new systems being uh held back from their development and as new systems evolve how can we make it so that they create the impact of the decentralization of the consciousness flowering happening around the planet how can we get that to happen most effectively in building the new world and so when we talk about roots of the reason why disinformation happens we look deeper and deeper and deeper and it seems like it comes from some sort of a disconnection a disconnection from each other a disconnection from nature from source from spirit from god from creation that it plays its role that there is there's this role that it plays in our world where we're rising up to this challenge to figure out how to tackle misinformation how to figure out misinformation security so that way we can figure out how to at the deepest level rise to these challenges solve them learn how to love learn how to not have these issues with with propagating malevolence and so that is in my thinking at a root also at a critical thinking level when we see a piece of content for us to be vigilant and and think deeper about this meme that we're observing and what is the purpose? What is the purpose that it's serving? How can I go and look deeper into this to know if what I'm looking at is in fact something that is real and something that is uh, something that I can be a deeper critical thinker about and then hopefully inspire other people to be deeper critical thinkers about. And so then some of the solutions for uh, for that Coxsex's working on. Let's go through some of those for misinformation security. Wow, that was a lot of material right there. Well, if I you want to hit on some so of the many other heavy stuff, things you just got into, like you can the, hit on some other stuff. Before. Well, the historical part is interesting, uh, and it's on my mind because I just helped my co-founder Grug just publish an article. It's propaganda where he's talking a little bit about the history of propaganda and you know what is and isn't different now thanks to the internet. Uh, but that's a, such a huge topic on its own. Yes. Um, I think I, think I want to focus in on you, sort of the final part of your question, because you're asking about what could we do differently to build, how could we build our digital infrastructure, our digital information infrastructure differently yeah. to support better goals. Yeah. So first of all, I got to make a bit of a disclaimer. You know, I'm... I'm starting a company to do a specific thing that makes money 
which I believe will help contribute towards that in some small way. Uh, but I can't really say that as an entrepreneur, I'm trying to solve all the world's problems. Of course. I think that, do you, you know, based on, you know, from my experience working in the social media industry, I think that, and it's almost embarrassing, I'm like the millionth person to say this, but the extractive attention economy and the engagement-driven business models that drive all these companies, we're really going to have to do something about that. Huge problem. We, we were going to, and we had you uh, <laughs> as one of the guests. We were inviting you to be our guest on that uh, social media and the attention economy panel that we did last year. Yeah. That, that was one of the best. If you guys haven't seen that one, check out that video on our channel, social media and the attention economy. Such a good <laughs> conversation on that exact subject. Yeah, and I, 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 man, I really regretted not being there, but it's one of these things, you know, my cup runneth over where it's like, oh, do I go to the extractive attention economy panel or do I go to uh, this, you know, Conference. special operations command or, yeah, you know, different yeah, people need yeah. to hear different things. So anyway, um, yeah, so many people talk about that. And, you know, Tristan Harris this is a great guy who I've met a few times. I think he has a lot of good things to say about that and is kind of leading the conversation in a good way. Yeah. Uh, Renee DeRest is also great there. We had her. Well, and show. Alex Stamos, of course, also has this. Sorry, I just got to take a moment of humility here. I'm not going to say also anything. Alex has an enormous amount of experience, and I have a little bit of experience. And Alex has very, very good ideas that have been very inspirational to me about how the structure of these companies and these platforms could be tweaked to generate better outcomes. And that's, that's the kind of conversation we need to be happening. We need to have people who know how it works now and have good intentions for how it should work in the future. This whole stuff about, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't even go there, but when people just start waving things around like, we need to break up the companies or whatever, it's like, that, that's too blunt of a club. Like, you know, you smash the company into little pieces and then later something else is going on and like precisely how does that actually solve the problem? I mean, you know, maybe breaking up the company does need to be a part of a solution, but like somebody's going to have to explain why that would actually change something, which of course then it doesn't make a good political slogan or, or whatever. I would say that for... So my experience was at Twitter. I worked at Twitter for a while, and I thought a lot about these questions while I was there. And uh, I, I went to great lengths to try to have conversations with as many people as I could. And one of the things that I think is that we need we need to look for we we need to look for solutions that the companies aren't going to throw their entire resources into fighting against. Because if you if the only plan you have is to break up Facebook. Facebook has a lot of money to spend on lawyers and PR firms and stuff like that. And they're not going to go willingly with that. You, you know, you're setting it up for a fight. But if you ask a question, if you start looking at things like, well, here's a, you know, here's a small incremental change that moves things a little bit in the right direction. Or more importantly, here's a new market that could open up for this company that would give them a new revenue stream, which would create a new set of incentives and then it would actually be a management priority to start doing some of these things. Mm -hmm. that, the, what I see is that every business is the same. You know, you have some things that contribute to the bottom line, and then you have some things that contribute to the PR that you need to generate because of current events. 
And the latter things are putting on a show, and then later something else will be the PR cycle, and you're not going to change your fundamentals there. But if you make more money because X happens, then that will, X will continue to be a priority for the company. So the problem is that right now, actually, if you go back historically, there was this era of Web 2.0. You know, mm -hmm. Web 1.0 was just like the web pages with like the HTML blink tag and, you know, funky old stuff that you can see at the Internet Archive if you go and visit. And then people were like Web 2.0, which is like interactive web apps. So now it's like a platform or a product as opposed to just like a banner in some sense, a sign. Uh, and then they were like, well, okay, it's a product. So how does the product make money? And I don't know if there was a really good reason for this or not, but in any case, it really feels like just an accident of history now that everybody kind of jumped on this bandwagon of we're just going to put ads on everything and that's how everyone's going to make money. And the, now the only business that anyone has is actually advertising. So there've been a lot of problems. <laughs> there've yes. been a lot of problems based on that. Yes. But the important thing I think is to go back and to say it doesn't have to be this way. Like it, nobody built the system that way because that was the only way that would work. Now the problem is that each individual system, there's gonna be a different answer for what a better revenue model is. So for instance, you know, if you have like Tinder, Tinder makes money by showing ads, but like the individual user of Tinder there's definitely a value proposition that they really want. So maybe the solution is that that one should be charging the end user. But if you look at Twitter, you're in a really tricky situation because everything about, like the very essence of Twitter is that it is fast. If you have something that you wanna say to the internet, Twitter is the fastest way to do that. Like if there's an earthquake, people will tweet oh my God, there's an earthquake, and then take cover. <laughs> and if it, you know, if it took four extra seconds <laughs> to send out a tweet, then people wouldn't do that. And then there would be a niche for someone else to build a product where you could say something without that four extra seconds delay. So that puts you in a very challenging situation. Also, nobody's going to pay for a subscription to be able to you know, once in a lifetime say, oh my God, there's an earthquake. There, you know, there's not a lot of overhead with some of these pure social products. So you, you like people wonder about it and wonder about it and wonder about it. So David, one of the things that you're talking about here is the way that we migrate away from the extractive attention economy oh, yeah. and towards the new uh, enabling new combinatorics to show up of the ways that we can sustain things like these projects, like a YouTube channel that is not necessarily based on watch these videos as long as possible, but <laughs> rather how do we maybe get viewers and patrons and donations and, oh, and stuff? Yeah, so, so, so yeah, 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 but without getting too deep into that. So, so there's so there's stuff like that, and then that's one thing is fixing the extractive attention economy, fixing the business plan. It's a great challenge, but then there's also how do you prevent as Coxec? How do you guys prevent these mass psychological misinformation attacks? So I see what you're getting at. So I'm gonna yeah, I'll dial it back from this you know real big picture. Let's reform society kind of stuff and talk about. The, part, the little part of the problem that we're carving off to work on here is right now, 
if somebody uses these techniques, like I was describing earlier when I gave the example of, you know, what if Huawei had decided to go all out against Cisco? Yeah. What, how could that have really played out? So if somebody does decide to go out, all out, nobody knows what to do. Mm-hmm. You, you, we're just at the point now where people can recognize that it's happening, which is good. So for instance, if you go back to around 1992, no one, there was no such thing as cybersecurity. The, like there was this brand new thing called the internet. And then there was this big internet worm and it took down a bunch of systems and people were like, what just happened? And then over the next few years, there were more and more bad things that happened that were attributed to the actions of identifiable individuals. And then people started to realize, okay, there's a security thing going on here, but they still didn't really have, you know, I mean, I kind of, sometimes I jokingly say that the early days of cybersecurity were a bunch of, you know, kids in the basement. And when cybersecurity became a thing, basically the FBI came and arrested half of them and hired the other half. <laughs> because, like, that was the best we could do. It's like, I don't know, some of these guys, let's just try to get them to help stop the problem. And some of the rest of these guys, we're just going to, I don't know, try to make an example of them with little rhyme or reason. And that's kind of the era we're in right now, except no one's getting arrested. What we need, the, what we need is we need a response model. And I don't really want to give away too much of our secret sauce. As but much as you can. I'll give away as much as I can. As, as an example, as with any security, you do have to start with a sort of preventive thing. Like, you know, like if you call a security company after your house has been robbed, there isn't that much <laughs> they can do. But you call, you know, you call the security company and they'll come in and they'll do a review. They'll, they'll do a threat assessment. So in this case, since we're talking about cognitive threats, the threat assessment is going to be understanding what the value propositions for your business are and then finding in what ways changes in public sentiment could hurt your business's value propositions. And then what are narratives which, if they went viral, would lead to those changes? And then what are, what are the factors that would be necessary to trigger those narratives and how do we prevent that from happening? So for instance... Wow. One wow. example, that, like an obvious example, you have somebody as the CEO of a company and you do an assessment and then you say, okay, so one bad thing that might happen to this company is that, you know, the rumor monger people on 4chan and so forth might find a bunch of, you know, memes or Photoshop photos or real photos or whatever, you know, that show, you know, like somebody making grabby hands or something like that. And then they propagate this and they construct this whole narrative that they're, you know, like some sexual impropriety or misbehavior or something like that. And then they just pound it and pound it and pound it. And then everybody's talking about how this politician or the CEO or whatever, that's the only thing anybody's thinking about with that person. And then that is a disaster for that brand. Yeah. So the kinds of ways that you work with that, and this is one of the things that I call misinformation Aikido. You really can't, you can't stop it head on. It's too powerful. And that's not how cognition works. It's like telling people, don't think of an elephant. You can't stop ideas. But you're thinking of an elephant now, because I said, don't think of an elephant. And if we just sit here and stare at each other in awkward silence, you're going to be sitting there thinking of an elephant. But if I give you something to do... Or how beautiful you are. Yeah, or that. (laughs) Looking deep into each other's yes. eyes. Yeah. Have you ever done the, the dyad meditation? Anyway, that's another, uh, another topic. So if I distract you, if I give you something else, that will make the elephant irrelevant. 
or if I had a chance to plan ahead, you know, if we hung out every day and every day I'd be like, ah, the elephant thing, hey, it's the elephant thing. You'd be so sick of me talking about this stupid elephant that like you just wouldn't even listen anymore. You wouldn't care. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if you've identified that there's a really critical vulnerability in the, you know, in the, the narrative security, I would even say for this company, which is that we know that there's a pretty good chance that some pictures might surface from that CEO. Just as a side note here, I suppose at that point, then I have to ask the question, well, actually, are they really bad? <laughs> if somebody's really bad, then I'm going to have to ask the question, well, do we really want their business? Mm. And fortunately, we haven't encountered a situation like that yet, mm. but I just want you to know I'm thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, if there's somebody that we think is basically okay, but you know, if you dig deep enough in anybody's past, you're going to find something from when they were in college or whatever that's not so great. And this person knows <laughs> somebody I, oh God, I wish I could say <laughs> somebody I know at another company has some pictures that they've really tried to get rid of because it would be so bad. And it was just a cardboard cutout, but still <laughs> people would not think it was funny if it came out right now. So what you might do in a situation like that is you say, okay, here's the thing that we're afraid of people thinking. So what we're going to do is we're going to make a bunch of crappy versions of that and we're going to just spew them all over the internet. We're going to make bad low grade Photoshop pictures of, you know, we're going to put the CEO's face on this other meme that's already popular and we're going to put it on this other meme that's already popular and we're going to do this and then we're going to just like post them everywhere and you know, like, I mean, if they want to pay for it, you can even like do some traditional PR and make a joke about it. Just make a joke about the whole thing. And then everybody's so sick of the idea of compromising pictures of the CEO back when he was in college that if the real ones ever come out, nobody cares anymore. So that's the kind of thing that you can do. And actually, <laughs> I just read uh, Neil Stevenson's latest book, Fall or Dodge in Hell. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of shocked because in around chapter 11 i'm going through the book and i'm like oh my god he's describes our whole business model right here uh he's way way ahead of the game and then in the acknowledgements he's like i learned this from this person at this conference and i'm like oh my co-founders are at that conference right now and the, i don't know this person but i'm one step away from the like everyone in my group is one step away from the person that the idea came from so it's mm -hmm. kind of like again small world <laughs> and that's also interesting that you guys are all around the solutions around misinformation security. Let me see if there's a, um, a good way to, um, to, to, to hit this tennis ball back. Um, so if you look at all of the potentials, <laughs> all of the potential uh, creative possibilities that informate that misinformation could come in and target a given uh psychographic and demographic of populations uh if there's a way that a company can cast another uh, malevolent uh uh misinformation campaign against another company it's per it's in a sense preparing for the these malevolent misinformation attacks on other companies on psychographic and demographic pockets of people in countries and so you know what narratives are the potentials that are going to come ahead of time you're prepared to cognitively be be jujitsu aikido to 
uh, is this Rand, Rand Waldsman calls it misinformation jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're prepared for these styles of misinformation. For the for the narratives, the the target demographic is prepared. The target demographic is prepared. Yeah, whether it be the CEO of a company or the general populace of a democracy, um, it does. Be, the, these some of these techniques work better in a targeted fashion. If you're talking about like the entire population of a democracy, it's kind of like there's so many ways. Like if if it's just that. Just for example, you have a democracy, there's only, say there's only two political parties, just to pick a hypothetical example, you have this incredibly broad problem of like getting slightly more than 50% of the people to prefer one over the other. You can literally use any narrative to make that happen. And the resources that would go into that would be so enormous. Uh, then you're talking about you know, an ongoing monitoring and protection campaign that I can't even begin to start talking about techniques at that level. But it, what I do think is important, and the reason why I believe that doing this in the private sector is one of the key elements of really solving the big picture problem, is that if we do this one piece at a time, that each piece we do, now that's just a tool in the toolbox that's ready to go. And if there's a toolbox ready to go to fight back against misinformation and to make it ineffective, attackers aren't going to use an attack that's well defended. Attackers are choosing to use this attack against us because we're completely helpless and undefended. So of course they're gonna use this attack. But if there's a, a big infrastructure and everybody's ready for it, you know, like France in 2018, there were Russian attacks on the French election and they were ready and they had like armies of people on the internet like counteracting things as they came up. And if that happens enough times, then they're gonna, they're gonna figure out that they should leave France alone because they know it's well defended. So, you know, it's just like if you get an alarm system for your house, <laughs> or to say something, somebody once said to me, yeah, I heard that the important thing is that you just need a bike lock that's a little bit bigger than the one on the bike next to yours. <laughs> So security is always an arms race. There's no such thing as perfect security, but you have a situation where you increase the cost to the attacker of a particular modality, then the, free, the likelihood of that attack taking place becomes much lower. I like that. And I also like the focus on the spiritual awakening and development of people around the world. The more that we also focus on that, the less these malevolent attacks go out in the first place. The more we create a world of abundance. Whenever we talk about things like the importance of, 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 um, of quantum computers being able to break cryptography um, and, and just things like this, I'm always thinking about yes and, and just like this with misinformation, make, helping people become more critically thinking about all of the ways that people could cast malevolent attacks in, I think about also yes and the spiritual awakening and flowering that can happen consciously around our world towards abundance, towards maximizing prosperity and away from fear, away uh, healing the trauma towards growth and how that itself 
acts as a massive solution to decrease malevolence and to increase um, prosperity. So yeah. I, I do. I see those both happening and the importance of those both at the, at the well, same yeah, time. Well, yeah, and actually let me make that a little bit more explicit even. What I personally, my journey after 2016, I had already been doing spiritually related things and focusing on health and well-being and in particular mindfulness and mental well-being and the training of attention and all these sorts of things. And long story short, I realized that these kinds of spiritual awakening and well-being and you know kindness and compassion and people doing the self-knowledge and stuff like that, that doesn't happen very well in a totalitarian dictatorship. It doesn't happen very well in Handmaid's Tale world. It doesn't happen very well in, you know, pick any of, you know, country with some tin pot dictator where people just get disappeared in the middle of the night, uh, which happens. I mean, I had a friend at a place that I worked who was really struggling with being able to talk back to their managers when they thought they were doing something wrong. And at some point, she was from another country. At some point I asked her, when you were a kid, did people just like get thrown into sacks and disappeared? Is that kind of the way you're used to thinking of authority? And her response was, oh, well, you know, by the time I was a kid, it didn't happen very much anymore. Which is like, think of the psychological impact of that. I mean, that, you know, you're not gonna really enjoy your meditation retreat if that is the environment you're living in. Uh, unless you're a particular CEO visiting uh, Myanmar, but that is a whole other story. So for me, I kind of took a step back and was like, "Whoa, we're gonna lose, we're gonna lose the playing field in which <laughs> this higher development could even have a potential of taking place if we don't take a step back and fix some of the leaks in the foundation." Mm. So for me, it's like, "All right, I got to fix some of the leaks in the foundation before I can really go back to working on." widely propagating mindfulness and you know in any way richie my old advisor he's doing a great job of getting people on board with mindfulness there's mm -hmm. plenty of other people mm -hmm. working on well-being yes. and things like that but i do see exactly as you said it's all definitely a continuum for me and it was all part of the same calculation for me of where i want to put my efforts for that goal I love that. And uh, let's play on that a little bit more. You focus so much of your time um, doing your PhD in psychology and neuroscience in Madison and Wisconsin. You spent a lot of time with the Center for Healthy Minds and focusing on meditation science. Teach us about what is the importance of bringing together science and spirituality together as we study meditation and what that does as we can help bring that to more people around the world. Ooh, boy, you just you went like one step forward and then you like hit me from the other side with this bringing together science and spirituality. That's some some heady big picture stuff. And God, I feel like we could just start at the beginning again for a whole other hour to talk about. You will together. with Ori in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but just to narrow it down a little bit, I would say that, like I started to say a minute ago, this idea of helping people you know, bring the idea of mindfulness to greater, <clears throat> you know, greater public awareness. Uh, I'm trying to make it not sound like a marketing thing or something like that, because sometimes it does come off like that. It's like, you know, as soon as you start to tell people, oh, you know, people should, you know, we should like, there should be more compassion. People should practice kindness and stuff like that. And then before you know it, it's an ad campaign and people are like wearing the, you know, the silicone bracelets or whatever. And then people are just buying into an identity without actually doing anything. 
And that's the real trick. When you're talking about these big picture uh, psychocognitive or spiritual or whatever, if you're thinking, hmm, these are virtues, I guess that's another way of putting it that's very traditional. If you're talking virtue ethics and you're saying, well, we would like to cultivate more virtues on a wider scale, you're, th that you're telling, I mean, what you're saying is that you want people to change who they are. You want people to change the essence of who they are because you want them to think and behave differently. And that is the essence of who they are. So <laughs> I got too heady for myself even there. What I was focusing on was mindfulness. And what a lot of people focus on is mindfulness. And like you said, it was 10 years of my life and it's very hard for me to narrow it down to a quick summary. But what I would say is that one, one version of this is that making an exercise where like a deliberate exercise of strengthening certain capabilities of your mind, namely attentional control and stability yeah. is a tool that you can then use to do all the other things that you would want to do psychologically. Yes. So it's just like saying, you know, if somebody has some sort of physical problem, you know, like maybe you have sciatica or like maybe your knees are bad or something like that. There's a general sense that like, if you don't know anything about exercise, it's going to be really hard to address that. So you kind of need a general purpose foundation of physical movement, knowledge and experience before you can target something like, oh, I'm going to try to do physical therapy on my knee. Unless you can afford to just have somebody do it for you, like a physical therapist or everybody goes to see a therapist and the therapist tells them what they should think. But it'd be nice for people to be a little bit more independent and self-sufficient. And so long story short, a lot of us have focused on mindfulness as a good way of talking about the general purpose skill that gives you foundation for all the kinds of things you might want to do, like cultivating compassion or whatever. And I think you do just, I should make a nod to the fact that you do see a lot of talk about this in Silicon Valley and the entrepreneur community and stuff like that. People are really interested in these sorts of things because as an entrepreneur starting a company, as we both know, and presumably a lot of our audience are mm -hmm. kind of on the same mm -hmm. sort of world, there are a lot of things you have to do that are actually kind of emotionally hard. Mm -hmm. You know, like you have to keep the faith even through long periods of hopelessness where nothing's happening and you have to be patient. Yeah. You know, you, sometimes you have to be charismatic. Sometimes you have to be humble. Sometimes you have to watch people's emotional reactions very carefully That's right. because you got to see if your pitch is going wrong. So there's all these mental skills that you need to learn. Yeah. And then if you have a sort of general foundation of, okay, I'm good at working with my mind, then that can give you a basis to do all these other things. That's it. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. If when when we drill um, into the deepest practices of our own psyche and our habits and knowing ourselves, uh, it it begins flowering in all aspects of the way that we engage with our world. Yeah. And I, I, I love that so much. And it actually, the deeper practices that we have with our non-separation, our interconnectedness with everything, um, the more that we also then um, uh, f uh, 
partake in building that new world that our hearts all know is possible. Yeah. So that's um, I'm happy that we did that bit. And okay, I want to do a couple um, on rapid fire. Okay. Okay. Rapid fire. Uh, yeah. Towards this end. So um, first part is the pl- the um, your thoughts on the involvement of decentralization technologies in the building of the new free speech of the way that we disseminate information to each other what is that optimal fabric for the dissemination are you asking information? what is the optimal fabric or are you asking if i think blockchain is a solution to everything? both both <laughs> because is the, how much is that a role in that optimal and what is that optimal yeah so there are a few so one definition of blockchain technologies is it is a slow immutable database uh and the idea of an immutable database like in the globally immutable like nobody can just decide that they're going to go in and change an entry there are potentially a lot of applications for that the scope of applications is limited by how slow and resource intensive it is right now uh, i think we all know what happened to all the people historically who said oh that takes too much computational power it's impossible which is that later we have enough computational power. I also think that people are probably going to find ways to make faster, more optimized things. On the more fundamental level, the problem is that like, a brick is immutable. Like, If a majority votes that it's not a brick, it's still a brick. But the way blockchain works is actually that if the majority of nodes or whatever you want to call it, if any, any distributed ledger, any distributed system, if the majority of participants decide to change it, it's baked into the system that it really is majority rule. So there are plenty of applications for which that's fine. And then there are plenty of other applications for which it's fine until some doomsday scenarios that you never thought possible actually turn out to be possible. Mm. Uh, there's... This is this is an it's an existential question about this technology mm. because there like there's only two ways of deciding what reality is and one of them is that you refer to something physical that doesn't go away and the other one is majority rule there's no <laughs> I mean there's no there's no other way to do it if you I mean it's because I mean digital information by its nature can be changed and edited and stuff like that so you can just distribute it widely enough that you can never find all the copies and change it. You can put it on paper and put it in a vault, and then that you've turned it into a physical instantiation that is immutable by virtue of being physical, but somebody could still steal it. Anyway, so there's mm-hmm. some issues that need to be sorted out, and I think that they're absolutely worth sorting out because mm-hmm. the idea of having... The, the idea of the distributed ledger where you can have things that can't just be changed by anyone who wants to change them is really important because re- I don't know if people understand how bad the situation with misinformation is right now but again, the Neil Stevenson book that I just read is projecting very slightly out into the future and imagining a scenario where somebody does a misinformation campaign and then 10 years down the road, people believe that a city isn't there that actually is there. And they're like arguing back and forth. I mean, you could go and look, the, the, the physical city is there. So having on the digital side, something to anchor something so that it can't just be changed later can solve one set of problems that go with one piece of the puzzle. I don't think it's like a 
panacea for anything, but it's definitely a tool that we didn't have before that we do have now that's really useful. Okay. Sorry, that wasn't really rapid fire. Thank you for insight. And then the other one is the optimal design of that social fabric that enables the communication. One of the things is inclusive stakeholding that we've been um, diving deeper into that is very interesting. When I actually have an inclusive stake in your fitness, then I don't spread a meme of malevolence. I don't spread a meme of self-dealing to myself. I think that the there are a lot of things that you can talk about in terms of the architecture of social networks. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say that if you really want to see a lot of good insights on that, just follow Alex Stamus on Twitter because mm-hmm. he has a lot of the best things to say that are really well informed. Excellent. And then there are a lot of things having to do with changing the revenue model that yes, I was starting yes. to get into earlier. You know, for like Twitter right now doesn't make more money by having good quality information on it than they do by having bad quality information on it. But if they did, mm-hmm. then things would change. If posts were m- made and ranked uh, based on the amount of uh, uh, educational content that was in them or knowledge that was in them or yeah. assistance that was in them, stuff like that versus just whatever it is. But I think a more important question comes from the fact that this isn't the real question you're asking can't be answered on the network architecture level because I, I think Interesting. this again this is like starting a whole other conversation but I'll just give you a teaser here maybe we can talk again about this sometime if you want to attack a society with an information attack and you know cause discord and problems turning people against each other is one of the things that's one of the weapons in the arsenal yeah and the way that you turn people against each other is you find the existing cracks and you widen them yeah so if you have a society where everybody feels like they have some sort of shared uh you know uh what's the word enfranchisement in the society then it's a lot harder to attack that with these sorts of attacks so the way that I say that like what <laughs> one of my, you know, like many side goals in doing this is to get in front of as many military and national security audiences as I can and say social and economic justice is a national security problem. Mm-hmm. Because if our society is fractured, then hostile foreign powers can use that against us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and the other um, ones on rapid fire are, do you think that humanity is a biological bootloader for digital super intelligence? <laughs> this, is the, uh, this is the new the new hot version of are we living in a simulation? Thanks to, who is it that phrased it that way? Musk phrased yeah. it that way, yeah. God, you, you, you only ask big questions, don't you? I, I think that, Personally, I think that it is very compelling philosophically that there are more than one different somethings, planes of existence or dimensions or parallel universes or whatever. Or, you know, there's just so many different ways of talking about that. I think historically you see in some but not all religions this idea that this reality is like the dream of a larger mind or Mm. something like that. And if you imagine that what if you imagine that whatever it is that would be quote unquote simulating us is obviously so powerful as to be more or less beyond our understanding, 
at that point, it kind of doesn't matter whether you call it, oh, it's the mind of Brahma dreaming us into existence, or it's a big computer simulating us, or something like that. So, you know, yes and no. I think if people are going to try to say that they know what the nature of that is, I think anyone who claims to have evidence for a specific version of that is really overreaching. Mm -hmm. But I think even just thinking of the vastness of the idea of a multiverse or the yeah. Dharmadhatu, uh, there's a lot of value in that. Yes, yes. It, it opens us up to some of the more abstract, bigger picture ways of going beyond even what's going on here on our planet and what is the ultimate nature of this reality. It's such a crucial topic. Um, okay, the other two. What has been your most profound experience in creation? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Do I get to tell a story? Does it have yeah. to be a quick? Yeah, of course. Of course. Tell a story. So the first time I ever had a psychedelic experience, we did a pretty low dose of mushrooms. Long story short, we walked through the Arboretum in Seattle, and I was looking for a mango because I asked my friend, what do you do when you're tripping? I saw you eat some fruit. It'll be really nice. What kind of fruit? How about a mango? So we walk through this long walk, and then we're at the grocery store, and I'm looking for a mango, and I can't find a mango. So I have an orange. And then we're not really tripping anymore and we have this super long walk back home in the dark through the forest. So we're walking along the road through the Arboretum and I'm walking along and a car drives by and something comes flying out the window and lands on the grass in front of me and it's a mango. What? So I'm looking at the mango and I'm like, hey guys, look at this. And everybody's just like, huh, that's weird. And at that point in my life where I was at in my development, I was just like, huh, that's weird. And I just went on. So about five years ago, I was actually telling this story to a friend of mine as we were walking along a trail through a forest in Madison where I was. And literally while I'm telling him the story, and I get to the conclusion about, yeah, and I didn't eat the mango. I feel like that's kind of a regret that I didn't like accept the gift from the universe or the lesson. Like I wasn't ready to receive the whatever the wisdom or the whatever from the universe because I didn't think to pick it up and, and take uh -huh. it. And while I'm saying this, we both looking and by the side of the road, there's a tree where three branches come out and it makes a little tripod like that. Uh -huh. And in the middle of the tripod is a completely peeled orange that's fresh. What? <laughs> so we're walking by and we're looking at that and I get about 20 paces for the long and I'm like, yeah, I should have eaten the mango and suddenly I just stop. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> so I run back and I get the orange and then we eat the orange and it was great. <laughs> it's always interesting thinking about uh, when the experience first happens to your reaction and then several years down the line, how you feel about that those experiences. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> um, okay, and then what has been your... What do you find is the most beautiful thing in creation? <laughs> I don't know. I could say all of it or something. Mm. I, don't, I don't really know. Mm. I, mm, that's, that's a tough one. Mm -hmm. My mind is going in circles. Yeah, I think I'm going gonna, I'm I'm gonna to pass on that one for now. You said all of it. We like yeah, that. Okay. Yeah, we've, we've had that answer on. We like that one. That's a good one. Yeah. 
so beautiful. Wow. Woo. David, thank Woo. you so much. Yeah. Woo. Wow. Wow, that was Misinformation great. Misinformation security. Wow. Thank you for enlightening us. You are very welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. Greatly appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking. Have more conversations with your friends, families, coworkers, people online about misinformation security, about the topics that we covered in the show, about how to early detect and attribute these disinformation campaigns, how to set up this jujitsu or Aikido <laughs> for, uh, the, for the uh, prevention of the misinformation. And also, um, do check out the links in the bio below to cogsec.tech. That's C-O-G-S-E-C dot tech. Also, David's LinkedIn profile. Also, the Cogsec Twitter profile. Check those out. And also, support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the leaders, the organizations in your communities that you believe in, spiritual elders. Support them. Help them grow. Help them flourish. You can find all of our links to our show below. Thank you, Ori Shapiro, for co-producing. Big love to you, brother. Thank you. And go and build the future. Everyone, manifest your dreams into the world. We love you very much. Thank you for tuning in, and okay. we will see you soon. And I want to thank everybody that supported me, and uh, hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Peace.